Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal, and I am your host, Tatiana Kazesnov. This week, we're going to carry on. I am in episode or part two of the episode from last week with Dr. Stasha Gomenak, um, a wonderful neurologist from the U.S. who, over years of observing and trying to help her headache patients, stumbled across a connection between sleep and vitamin D. Um, we're going to continue that story today. It's a complicated story. If you'd like to get all of the background information, I highly encourage you to listen to last week's episode. This week, we're going to delve into the practical applications and a few other interesting topics. So welcome back to episode two with Stasha Gomenak. Last episode, we talked about the wonderful and interesting, fascinating story about how the sleep is associated with the vitamin D3 and the B vitamins and the microbiome. The next logical question, of course, is how do you take this information and bring it into your life? Now, we have major problems. It's a very complicated story. Um, Stasha has made it very, very clear that you don't play around with these vitamins unless you absolutely have to, and also that you have to keep the levels of the D and the Bs relatively monitored. That may not be easy by yourself, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And also about what to do when your doctor doesn't play ball, because here in the UK, it's um, standard practice that you can have your vitamin D measured, but certainly not more than once, maximum perhaps twice a year. The NHS, I suspect, would not really pay for that. And also the levels of vitamin D that are recommended. I know from my own visit to a GP here, where I was told that if you take four 100 international units a day, that's more than enough. You shouldn't take any more. Go away. There's nothing. It's just to make sure you don't get rickets. So I think even GPs are not really understanding the relevance of this hormone. So, Stasha, back to you. Let's have a look at this. Let's talk about the man and the woman on the street. What do they do if they suspect, from what you've explained in the last episode, this might be a relevant issue for them? Thank you again for asking me back, and I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I, let me preface this by saying I spend most of the time on my website, which is www.drgomenak, Dr. Dr. No period, D-R-G-O-M-I-N-A-K dot com. I spend most of the time on that site talking about sleep. But there are many people who have medical problems and they do not know that they have a sleep disorder. Either they've always been tired or they've always awakened in the middle of the night or they sleep and they just feel tired. The general concept in the background is if you have things wrong with you and you are seeing your doctor more than just to say hi, you are not healing normally in sleep. So you can actually have a sleep disorder and not know it. Okay, so that's a very important point. So if your intention is to lead a healthy life and to be happy, it is worth concentrating on whether or not your sleep may be abnormal, even if you don't know it. Those of us who don't sleep well, we already know it, and we've already gotten to a point where we're interested in that idea and getting better. So for the person on the street who has a regular level of education, you can still understand the why of why I want to do this. I personally am very focused on the why, but you don't have to know that. 
I have a workbook that I put together that leads you through how to take the vitamins. It tells you in very basic terms which vitamins you need for how long. If you want to delve deeper into the why, you go to my website and you read. And there's lots and lots of information on there that's to help enlarge your understanding of why we're doing this. But there are a few stumbling blocks in the UK. One of them is that vitamins are not as readily available. And it's not just the UK. Vitamins are readily available in the US, but that's kind of rare. It turns out in other countries, they're not. I actually had a woman from the New Zealand who is bed bound um, and she can't go outdoors because she's sick. And the vitamin D she ordered online was confiscated at customs because they're not allowed to take vitamin D supplements. So believe it or not, there are educated, um, right-thinking people in the world uh, that have a harder time than even in the UK. But one, there are some things you need to know. Little green pills that are prescription are D2. They're what fungus makes. They're for rats. They're for nocturnal animals. It's not for humans. It's in the milk. (laughs) It says D2 on your... I know, it's crazy. Breakfast cereal, which you shouldn't be eating anyway, but, you know. D2 is not the right stuff. Every animal from insects on, insects, birds, fish, reptiles, humans, mammals, all make and use D3. So D2 is wrong. There's a, there's a large story about how that happened in medicine. But I wrote prescriptions for D2 when I started because I didn't know any different. And I watched my patients come back and say, that stuff nearly killed me. I couldn't sleep at all. And I had terrible diarrhea and I ached all over. And I said, well, oh, you didn't sleep well anyway. What are you talking about? And then it took several patients coming back for me to realize, oh, this is the fifth patient who told me that this prescription worked in the opposite way from the stuff they bought at the store. Well, what's up with that? I mean, aren't prescriptions better for you? No. In this particular case, doctors are way behind the man on the street who just goes to the internet to learn about nutritional education because the doctors are not interested. So one, D3 is what you need to be taking. That is not so difficult in the U.S. because it's very hard to get D2 even in health food stores here, you really can only get it from your doctor who thinks they're helping you. So D3 is what you need. Now, the next issue is how do I get my D3 blood level done? And you must be able to get a D3 blood level in order to do what you want to do. You want to get healthy. You have to know what your blood level is. Luckily, there is a company in Brighton that will do your blood level for a very reasonable price. I don't remember how many pounds it is, but it's not bad. And you uh, prick your finger with a little lancet. You put little drops of blood on a piece of paper and you dry it and you mail it back to them. And within usually about a week, maybe a little more than a week, they'll send you back your results. So you can get it directly from them without your doctor cooperating with you. You as a layperson are allowed to find out this information about your own blood. You can actually get those tests directly from Amazon. That's where I got mine from. You can totally bypass your doctor, and it's about it's around twenty five pounds, I think. Yeah, which is very reasonable. Very reasonable. And that is actually very easy to do in the U.S. too. There are now multiple companies in the U.S. Canada much more difficult. Canada, you have to actually do it through the U.S. You can do it through the Brighton company, but there are two companies that you can do it online for those um, using the filter paper and mailing it back to you. 
But then in the U.S., there are now multiple companies that have contracted with a doctor in their state. So you get an order, you go to the lab, you, you have the blood drawn, and you get back in two days the result directly back to you. I mention that because I think that's going to be the trend in the future, that if, if the, um, the U.K.'s National Health Service doesn't want to pay for it, but they realize that there are there's a huge population and there's there are laboratories willing to do that. And so there's going to have to be legislation for it. But I think that that's the way that people are going to be ending up going. So the next issue for doing it in the UK is you have to know that the vitamin D supply comes in either micrograms or international units. What I see happening in the US is the uh, bottles are now coming written in micrograms with the international units in parentheses afterwards. So my, my guess is that probably the drug industry or, or the vitamin industry is going in the direction of writing it in micrograms. Then you have to know the conversion. So I'll be putting those conversions into my workbook, but you have to know what's the conversion between micrograms and international units. Um, the next piece is if you want to get B50, which is 50 milligrams or 50 micrograms of each of the eight B vitamins, I have actually found it much cheaper and much easier to find them through U.S. suppliers, even from writing from the U.K. There are several suppliers online that have purposely set up a company where they can send all around the world because the vitamins are so hard to find in other countries. So it turns out to be B50 is really cheap here. I can get it at one of the you know health and exercise stores. I can get 250 uh, pills for like eight bucks. So that means it's cheaper if you have it mailed to you. And um, they also know how to get around the customs officials. So they're professionals at being able to get it across customs in multiple countries around the world. So look for that and look through them. Um, I don't have any certain company that I'm affiliated with on purpose, but if you look for that, you'll be able to find it easily. The next question is, what do I do with my kids? If I want to do this with my child that's not sleeping at all, what I do with my, my uh, children in the U.S. is I have them go find just a chewable multivitamin for kids. And I have them increase to about two and a half of them. So most of the chewable, like Flintstones vitamins or gummy vitamins, usually for children have 10 milligrams of B5 and they have all eight Bs. So you have to actually look at the Bs, make sure there are eight of them. You have, so you have to be a little educated or take a page from the workbook with you to the pharmacy and you make sure it has all eight, but if I'm going to do something similar to what I do in adults, for children under about 11 or 12, I usually give B25, and usually about a half of what I would recommend for an adult. So most of the time, two and a half of a Flintstones complete chewable vitamin is equivalent, okay? Children still have to get their vitamin D levels done. Their range for normal sleep is still 60 to 80 everybody's range is the same no matter what age. The dose of vitamin D for each person is completely unique. Do not believe anyone, I don't care who it is, that tells you they know what dose you should take. They don't know. You will be the only person who will know. And you will only know that after you've gotten a D blood level, you've taken vitamin D for a month, and you've gotten another D level. Because you get to see how your body responds to whatever dose you started with. 
Vitamin D is a hormone and it's very different than vitamins. It's really not a vitamin. That means you may be using more hormone D for the first two years if you were really sick in the past. And then slowly over time, as you have made the repairs that you deferred, you will use less per day. Or at least that's the way my patients appear to behave. Okay. There are articles that say you should take this amount. That is not appropriate because each person is really unique. About one in 50 people need one-tenth of the dose of the rest of the humans. Doesn't matter what your skin color is. Doesn't matter what part of the planet you're on. If you happen to have, I, I think that those are mutation related, but we don't have proof of that yet. But you must do your D levels. You must take some and then check your D level again. It's a little complicated. That's why I have a workbook. If you're going to do this with your children in the UK, you're probably better off going through that same type of company where you can get an easily available all eight B's multivitamin to do it in your kit. Your next question should be, oh, do I want two and a half times the vitamin A, C, E, K, etc. that's in the multivitamin? Well, no, you really don't. But if you're only going to do it for three months, it's not going to hurt your kit. Okay. Now, that, that means that over time, what all of us want is to be off these vitamins. So the original complaint by medicine was, if you really have a healthy diet and you're a healthy person, you shouldn't need vitamins. I completely, absolutely agree with that. So that means once you've fixed everything and all of your stores of vitamins have been repleted and now you're actually back to a normal human, then you probably don't need supplement. But if you've been sick for 20 years, you may have two or three years where you're making extra repairs and you may need more, okay? So keep that in mind. I spent a lot of time talking about Bs and D, but there are many other vitamins that are in parallel being used to make all the repairs that we're talking about. So you need to think about that at least a little bit. And you'll notice in the regimen that I recommend, there's always a multivitamin in the background with a specific number, a specific dose of B vitamins that you need to pay attention to also. Okay, I'm going to stop for a second and have you see if you have any questions for me about that. <laughs> uh, no, other than um, one question. Well, I do actually. One question I had, of course, was you talked about the fact that there's no specific level for any one particular, but is there, for example, um, a weight to uh, um, pill ratio, you know, I, I weigh 48 kilos. So whenever I go to a doctor, which is very rare, um, and they prescribe me um, medication, I, I usually actually instinctively take half the dose because I know most of the tests are probably done on some big burly soldier who's at least three times my body weight. So does the same apply for vitamin D? And in fact, is there even a gender difference? Because with I mean, it's a hormone that immediately makes you think there may be differences in fat solubility, amount of fat between men and women is different, so on and so forth. Excellent, excellent questions. First, because I did not know the vitamin D literature very well when I started, I was actually at an advantage because I had a completely open mind. I was reading Walter's literature Walter Stump's literature about vitamin D receptors, but I, I hadn't actually been indoctrinated into what is the dogma about D. 
There is no difference by weight, in my view, but I'm going to explain a little bit about obesity and how that what, what they've said about it. There is no difference by sex, and there's no difference by age. You still have to generate your blood level. There are huge differences from individual to individual, and it doesn't seem to relate to the skin color, even though that has to do with our ability to make vitamin D out in the sun. I have African-American patients who need 2,000 IUs a day. I have other patients who need 50,000 a day. 50,000 IUs a day is a huge dose of vitamin D. And I only got there in some of my patients after literally years of trying lower doses and their, their level would not budge. There is a body of literature that talks about absorption of vitamin D. But what I saw was a little different than that, which was... In the patients who are the sickest, they usually have GI tract issues. So there may be an absorption issue that may be in the background. But what I also saw was over a period of years, so I've had patients in whom I've been following their vitamin D level and have documented what dose they're taking for five years in a row. And what will happen is the patients who are sickest seem to need biggest doses. And then in about year three or four, the amount that they are actually needing to stay the same. So all of a sudden in year three, they're taking the same amount they've been taking the last two years and all of a sudden their level goes up. So to me, that means they're actually using less and it is not related to how fat they are. So what it says in the literature now is, oh, D is a fat soluble vitamin. That means fat people dissolve it in their fat. That is absolutely ridiculous. We don't know where it's stored. It's true that it's fat soluble when you take it out of the body and you put it into a Petri dish. But the people who are obese are obese because their microbiome is bad because they're D deficient. What I did see is a 35 year old who's only been able to get pregnant once, who has endometriosis, multiple miscarriages, terrible headache, chronic body pain, hypertension and diabetes, who's on 15 pills at age 35, she required 30,000 IUs over two years. But you know what? Over time, her use or the amount that she required to keep her blood level the same slowly floated down into 10,000, which is what most of my patients needed for their maintenance dose. I think that means she's using more vitamin D to do hundreds of repairs that did not get done. That means if we prevent her, if we say, one, she's fat, therefore, blah, 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 we miss the possibility of thinking about it that way. The second thing I've noticed as I've read through those articles is because that's the dogma that's been taught, the scientist who's actually trying to determine whether or not it's true that fat people require more, tend to do things like, oh, we're going to take 20 people who have a BMI that's way too high, and then we're going to take 20 people who are normal weight, and we're going to give them the same dose, and then we're going to average what the blood level is. Okay, and then if you look just at the obese people and you notice that they gave 20 people the same dose, but if you look at the actual where those points come out on the graph for each one, instead of the average value, you see that they're all over the map. This person who weighs 400 pounds 
took a dose of 20,000 and their level went way too high. This person who weighed 400 pounds took a dose of the same and they had, you know, it went up by 10 points. When they average out the hormone level of those 20 participants, they just negated what they could have observed, that there's a huge variability. That means, oh, well, if this person is 400 pounds, really only needs a dose of 2,000, that means it's not dissolved in the fat. So, one, that is dogma that is not correct. I do start with much lower doses for children, and there is a weight ratio, but it's not very dependable. Okay, so for instance, below age 12, I usually say let's half, let's start with half of the dose that I recommend for for adults, which I give as a range for what your D level is. But each, every single person who does this has to understand that the very first dose that you give is still a complete guess. Until you have two points of data for your body, you do not know what you need. That means you must do the same thing for your kid. Never do vitamin D in your kid if you can't draw blood levels. If you want your child to have a better outcome, with this information, then start to read about how you can get them out in the sun more. You can never overdose your child by being in the sun. So there are all these processes that don't necessarily have to do with tanning. There are ways that vitamin D becomes um, changed to a different chemical on the skin by heat. So ultimately, the literature supports that you cannot push your own blood level above 80 if you're only using the sun. Now, what that translates to for your children is if you get them out of the sun, you use sunscreen at the beginning. If you have a kid that tans, then you don't use a sunscreen at the second half of the summer. If the kids tan and they're not going to burn and you know it's within the time frame that you know your kid won't burn, then you let them make as much vitamin D as you possibly can in the summer. And then you watch what their sleep does during the year. If your child only has, you know, some sniffles and gets cranky in March and April, you don't want to mess with this. If your child has epilepsy and you want to do something different and you know that they're tired every morning and they always have been and they didn't sleep for the first year of their life, then you are intervening with very important chemicals. You must do blood levels and you have a really important outcome. That means you will not only learn using my technique in the workbook, how to cure the epilepsy, but more importantly, how to teach your child to notice what their sleep is like so they'll never get the epilepsy back again, even when they go to college and are sleep deprived. So the second thing I would say about my technique is what I'm interested in is not just fixing the sleep for this month or this year, but noticing, learning how your body tells you is my D level okay? So what I learned from my patients was if I got into the second and third year, nobody wants to have blood drop. So we get to a place where we go, you know, my sleep isn't very good anymore and I'm a little constipated. My nose is runny. Oh, well, that's what happened the last time my D was over 80. Hmm, maybe I'm going to go down for two days. And oh, I just went out in the sun and I forgot to decrease my dose. You learn over time is my D, unfortunately, the symptoms are the same above and below for most people, not all. So you can tell that you're not right 
And then the next question is, is my D too high or too low? And over time, you'll acquire information about your own body that's unique to you. The symptom list that you generate will then help you. And then over time, you'll say, well, I'm going to go down for a couple of days and then see how I do. And then if I don't do well, I'm going to go get my D level done next week. So, and one of the things that struck me in the second year was if I had an argument with a patient, I'd say, no, based on these numbers, I think your level's too high. And they'd say, no, I think it's too low. They'd always be right. And I, I had no investment in whether I didn't think they'd be able to tell, but there was something about, so it's learning to one, believe your body Two, you have to have some numbers so that you can base it on something objective. But over time, the most important part of this whole mechanism is to listen to your body, learn how it's talking to you, learn that things that you can tell about your body. For instance, if I get back to sleeping eight hours and I now assume that my REM sleep is great because all my headaches are gone and I wake up pain-free in a good mood, smile on my face, I feel fabulous. That right there should be your baseline. That's what you should work towards every day. Two months from now, I have three headaches in a week. My back hurts. You don't just say, I knew it wouldn't work. (laughs) No, you say, oh, something's wrong. My headaches are back and my back hurts. What could be wrong? Am I on too much bees? Uh Uh-oh, it's three months. I was supposed to stop it two weeks ago. I'm still on B50. Uh-oh, it's hurting me now. Things like that. The most important part, the most important learning experience for me was my recommendations as a physician are just suggestions. They're observations from other people. What you learn about your own body is the most important part. To listen to it, recognize what it means with experience and with someone else helping you, and then say, oh, I think I need to do this right now. Oh, did it help or not? Brilliant. I, I love that because, because, you know, my, my mantra is, is getting people to take back responsibility for their health care. You know, your, your health care belongs in your hands. Your doctor is there to help you, but it's, it's not his or her responsibility. So that, you know, hurrah to that. Absolutely. Um, you spoke in the last episode, we talked about the fact that the B vitamins, because they are vitamins as opposed to D being a hormone that their effects can be seen within 24, 48 hours. If you're adjusting your D levels, um, how long do you have to wait before you see an effect? Is it as dramatic or does it take a bit longer? D is much more complicated and each person has their own. I can give you a finite, well, I can give you a suggested list of what you might see with the Bs. And I don't even really know which B we're looking at. I give you most of the time in my workbook, phrase in B5, um, but there are several other things operating in the background. Now, when you move to D, D moves up and down over a week or two. And it also depends dramatically on what dose you need. So, for instance, if I'm in the habit of giving everyone who has a, a D level of uh, 10 nan- nanograms per mil, which is really low, in the UK it would be like, three okay really low and the person's really sick and i know that they're in a hurry to get better you know i'm I'm in a place where i'm doing this with a lot of experience so i've actually gone up to as much as twenty thousand international units keeping in mind that twenty thousand international units is the amount that we see being made on the skin middle of the day bathing suit 
two or three hours in the sun. Okay, so that is the natural amount that we think is the maximum that the human body will make. Okay, so that's why I stopped at 20,000. If I give five people 20,000, even based on their first blood level, one of those people may feel like they're dying. And it turns out that if we do a blood level again in that person in a week, because they call me back and say, I feel terrible. And I say, you're not supposed to feel terrible right away. Most of the people feel nothing. They may occasionally get a little bit better sleep. If they feel terrible and you do a blood level again, and they went from a level of three to a level of 68, you gave them 10 times the amount that their body was used to. I think that probably implies that when they go out in the sun, they only make 2,000. That person is genetically a different mix. Those are probably mutations that came out of certain parts of the world, like Scotland and England. I think England probably does have a bigger concentration of big, fat redheads, number one. They have red hair and they have no pigment or they have this specific mutation in their pigment and their melanin that came about because there was no sun. They survived better in places where it's overcast all the time. So that meant that the people who had this one mutation that meant their body only made 2,000 and only required 2,000 had a big advantage. They got big and strong and they married the other redhead down the block. There is not the link between the melanin melanin mutation and the dose. They come separately. So you can't assume that a redhead will need less. Uh, but redheads are special in the way they, they, they tend to have more, more dramatic D deficiency in my experience. Okay. And that's, again, that's in Texas. That means if you pick up all these Scotsmen in the late 1800s, and you plop them in Texas where they fry like a lobster, what you see is people who cross to Native Americans here are the only ones that are alive because the Scotsman died, alcoholic, mean, ugly person at age 40 because he never slept once he left Scotland. So that means there's a level of complexity to this that, that makes it a little difficult. Did I answer your question? I got a little distracted there. <laughs> no, you absolutely did. Yeah, about how long the vitamin D... Yeah, it moves by weeks and months. I wanted to comment, too, on what we had said about the doctors. <clears throat> I want to make a claim for the physicians in the world who, like me, are trying to do their best. They really want their patients to get better. And I really think that anybody who's still in medicine today, it is not a happy, fun environment. We don't make a lot of money. It is a struggle. The patient's frustrated. We're frustrated. All we do is give out pills. This is not what any of us had in mind. And I, what I see in my colleagues and what I saw myself was there is nothing like the feeling of a client or a patient coming back and saying, you saved my life. I feel so much better. I feel so much better. Everything that I have on my website is about patients coming back and saying, you know, you told me to do this and this, and I didn't feel so good. And then I did this and I go, oh, what did you do? Because I was out on this frontier where I couldn't find any articles or somebody else writing about it. I had to listen. What a weird concept. I had to listen to what my, my patients said to me. 
every single human being can tell you so much about what they're feeling. They can describe little details about their sleep and the outcome of their sleep that we have as physicians minimized. We've said, oh, they don't know if they're sleeping or not. That is not true. Every single human being can tell if they slept well or not. There are people who've never slept well and they won't have a reference point. That's the one exception. But I would say that medicine is by definition extremely conservative. There have been so many things that have come out about vitamins that have resulted in bad outcomes for their patients. And the, the, the weird thing is your doctor never sees the person who gets healthy because they take vitamins. When they take vitamins and they get better, they don't go back to that doctor. They go to another doctor or they don't go back at all. So one of the things I have to say to commend my patients for coming back and saying to me, what you told me to do didn't work and being willing to come back and sit in a room with me. And then I have to learn to realize that, oh, I've been doing this for 30 years. I just did everything that's in the books. Let's do something else. Have you got any other ideas? Let's read something else. What, if, what, if, what about so-and-so just said this? And I go, okay, I'll read about it and let's try it. How did you actually manage to do that? Because I mean, in the US, exactly as in the UK, doctors have to abide by standards of care, which means you basically have SOPs, standard operating procedures, you can work within parameters. Now, I've always thought that if a person was motivated, sincere, intelligent enough to actually survive medical school, that perhaps they should actually be entitled to make a couple of judgment calls. When you think? Apparently that's not the case. Apparently they're robots and they they have to run off this list of protocols. So how can you get a doctor to to think out of the box? Because they're actually breaking their, their guidelines by doing that. And a lot of times we won't get paid. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I left clinical medicine was that I was getting paid less and less every year because I wasn't doing procedures. The procedures that were the major money makers for me as a neurologist are painful. I would stick needles in people. I would use electrical shocks and I would learn things about the nervous system. Yes, I did learn things. I'm fascinated by that, but it didn't really help the patient. It didn't. I knew that what was wrong with them. Ultimately, what I was doing is I was putting these needles in is asking them about their sleep. That meant I, I just felt too guilty doing those procedures now to learn something. And I got into a different place where I felt like, you know, the most important thing this person wants from me as they walk in the door is one, a level of connection to know that there's some other human being here helping them. That is, that is not something I learned in medical school. Maybe just me, but I think that feeling of connectiveness that we're all seeking is kind of drummed out of us. It's certain as physicians, it certainly is not encouraged. I don't get paid for that. If anything, to make that connection, if I have to see the patient for a half an hour, and I always ran terribly late, but if I make that level of connection to the patient and I get paid the same amount, over time, as I see fewer patients, I make less and less money. So ultimately, by the end, I thought, you know, no one is giving us any positive feedback about this. In fact, it's no longer that I'm getting drugs refused by an insurance company because they're too expensive. They're getting refused because the, the insurance company knows better. 
they're going to tell me which drug to use. And if I don't use any drugs at all, then I'm off in this other place where the insurance company is like, oh, you should have used this drug. If I have somebody with hypertension and I want to treat their sleep instead of putting them on an anti-hypertensive, they're not able to keep up with that. And really what's in the U.S. in particular, I don't know if it's this way in the U.K., but now it's companies that were designed and originated as insurance companies that are determining what treatment protocol is being used. Insurance companies are designed to look at actuarial data. They don't, they don't have a commitment to a human-human interaction. They, that's not a company that you want to be, have taking care of you. So there's a policy decision in the background that is actually being decided. The patients are making that decision. They're going elsewhere. They're going to the internet. They're seeing me on the internet. They're seeing multiple other alternative doctors. They are seeking a human to help them. They actually have access to every single bit of information I would have if I were to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. Every human being has access to that. That means it's no longer about access to information. When I went to medical school, I paid them to use the library. I didn't see it that way. But I was really, our access to information was based on being able to apply to a school, a physical place where all the books were kept and other people who had experience in these things could teach me. Now that's available to every layperson. That means any patient who comes to see me might know more about their disease than I do. They only have one and they, they've read extensively and they come in with all these things to suggest to me and I better be open-minded enough that I'm willing to read about that. Back to your question, one of the reasons why I left typical clinical medicine was I, I was practicing in a totally different way now. I had gone drifted so far away from the typical that I, I just, I would be swearing every day and I would be in a bad mood. My patients and I were doing great, but these letters I was getting back or the amount of pay or the amount that I had to pay for, I had three, um, I had three employees just to be sure that the patient had, had insurance before they walked in the door, that they'd actually paid their insurance premium. And so uh, I'm, I'm not doing insurance anymore. I'm doing just cash practice. And that's not unusual anymore in the U.S. There's a developing industry like in Canada where there's really two systems. There's the plain system where you'll wait probably three years to have a hip replacement, or you may fly somewhere else and get your hip replaced faster and for cash. Yeah, I suspect the same thing will happen here in the UK. It's a little different, though, because we have, uh, it's, it's called a national insurance payment, which is a, a payment that covers not only health care, but unemployment insurance, sickness benefits, a whole load of, of different things. And it's taken out as a lump sum from your salary. And one problem I often think is actually the fact that because the amount that you pay for your healthcare in the UK is not stipulated in, in pounds and pence on your paycheck. People don't actually know how much they're paying. And so there's sort of a kind of an idea that it's actually completely free because you don't see the bill. And so they're very, very committed to the NHS. And the NHS is a marvelous organization. I think there's hardly any, if any other country in the world where so many people are treated ostensibly really for free because even the amount that you pay per annum is compared to other countries really reasonable in the UK 
But I just looked at the Commonwealth study, which comes out from the, the Commonwealth organization in, in the, U, uh, the U.S., and, you know, the two countries that had in terms of efficiency, quickness of seeing patients, uh, hospital efficiency, all of these metrics, they scored the best. But patient outcome, they scored the worst. And number one on that list was the UK and number two was the US. So clearly the system isn't working on in terms they're brilliantly efficient systems but as far as patient outcome is concerned which to me is the most important metric something's not going right here so i don't understand how a, how how that's going to sort itself out in in the uk and i think more and more people are probably also opting for the private system or going to naturopaths however they're still bound to pay into the nhs so they feel like if they don't go to their nhs doctor they're kind of wasting money and and i get that you know people people have to watch where the pennies go i i I would also say you know once i've got my head around the idea that what what if what i'm doing i.e getting to sleep better means that nobody gets sick. Brilliant. (laughs) You know, we don't even think of it that way. But when I was a child, our grandparents went to the doctor. It's not that there's not going to be anybody who's sick, but the intention, as stated by all of the national health organizations, is prevention. But that doesn't mean I take three pills to prevent these three things. It means what really is the the growing wave in the U.S., which is uh, longevity or concentrating on I feel good and don't have any reason to see my doctor. I don't have a doctor because I'm not sick. That concept has changed from the 1960s so dramatically. I really see what I'm doing if you started in childhood fixing someone who's 35 who's had 35 years of agony is totally different than starting your kid with the knowledge that oh if they go out in the sun and they don't burn they make all the vitamin d that they use in the winter if i live in denmark huh could i make enough vitamin d in this little nigerian kid that i just adopted who was meant to be at the equator no they're not that means that kid from the beginning needs to have vitamin D levels done, and that kid never develops a sleep disorder. That child, therefore, never develops autism. They never have Asperger's. They don't have ADD. That means we don't need these pills. That concept is in the background of almost every disease that we deal with, not cancer probably, but the rest. So I really hope that within the next five years, there will be multiple MDs, the dentists in my country are all over this, oddly enough. They're really kind of trained in dental school about dentistry and dentition and nutrition because uh, Weston Price was a major player in their formation of dentistry. Doctors, uh, you either go functional medicine, naturopath, and unfortunately, I think both of those groups you come out of the office with 18 pages of lab results instead of three, but you're still coming out of there with lab results. And we we humans are fixated on this idea that we're going to ma- manipulate these little numbers. The more numbers we can measure, the more we can manipulate them. No, everyone that I manipulate 
something else goes wrong. The bottom line always is, what does the patient say about how they feel? How can I use that? How can they get to a level of homeostasis where they can stop all their pills? You know, and ultimately, when you get into the the health movement, I really do think that's very important to recognize there's a triad. There's healthful eating, which I think includes fasting, and that's really a trend now. Healthful eating, exercise, and sleep are really the triad. You get my stuff really good and you ignore the other two, you still won't do well. That was exactly going to be my next question because, I mean, you know, when you talk about having sleeping, your, uh, fixing your sleep will actually fix all of these other diseases, the same claim is made by the functional medical doctors and so on and so on. So surely the practical approach is actually all of them. Yes, you have to have all three. And it's interesting to me that I'm in the now another population. You know, the people that walk into the office for a neurologist have neurologic illness. What I realized right off the bat was if you tell someone who's 100 pounds overweight and aches all over and has foot pain that they have to go out and walk every day when it's 100 degrees, they've already tried it. They've been to Weight Watchers. You know, they, they've been so burdened with everybody telling them they're just a fat slob and it's their own fault that it's so demoralizing. That means if you take that same person and you slowly coax them into feeling better what, without me telling them, There'd be this 350-pound woman walking every day in the middle of the day when it was 100 degrees. And I would like, you're walking every day at noon? I, don't, I can't even believe you can do that. And she said, oh, yeah, I feel so much better. They're not, it's not that they're ignoring these recommendations. They feel so terrible. They don't have the energy to do it. If you let them get to the place where they have the energy – and you expect them and you coax them into saying, now's the time when you're going to go towards dieting and this is the way to do it. I want you to read this and you need to start an exercise regimen. That's really where you get to a healthy place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, even with conventional medicine and just drug taking, compliance is always the biggest issue. Sometimes the patients just don't play the game. So, I mean, And if they don't feel better, you can't right. blame them. Absolutely not. Yeah, we, we, we lose track of that. We lose track. We've, we've really converted. What I realized about midway through this is I walk into the room. There's a 45-year-old man. He just had a stroke. His family is standing there doing this, right? They're assuming that he doesn't take all his pills. He doesn't do what his doctor tells him to because he just had a stroke. Well, what if that guy has actually been taking two antihypertensive medicines, a medicine for diabetes, and an anti-cholesterol medicine, he's taken all of them. I actually convinced that guy at age 35 that he could prevent. None of those diseases have symptoms. Hypertension really does not have symptoms. Neither does diabetes. At the, at the grade that we're looking at it now, none of them have symptoms. They didn't walk into the office saying, my blah, blah, blah hurts, or I can't do this. They walked in the door saying, Oh, I have blah, blah, blah. And the doctor said, oh, let me measure your blood pressure and your cholesterol and your sugar. And then they put him on those three drugs. Doesn't that mean that when he's 45 and he has a stroke, shouldn't he be able to say to me, I've taken all these drugs for 10 years. You promised me you were treating asymptomatic diseases that would lead to this, yet it didn't prevent the outcome. Okay, now, why is he not suing me? 
Because as soon as he says that, I say, well, you have hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol. What do you expect? And his whole family is nodding. But what's the problem here? This is a self-fulfilling circular argument. If I told you as a physician that I have literature that suggests that if I can get the cholesterol back to normal, I can get the sugar back in the normal range, and I can get your blood pressure back to normal, and we did all that, and it didn't prevent the stroke, something's missing. If I keep listening to that same dogma, and that's all I'll listen to, the fact that I didn't prevent it should make me wake up and say, wait a minute, what about these articles about inflammation? What about these articles about the microbiome? What about the fact that B vitamins go into the head and make you revved up? Could they actually be, oh, acetylcholine? Oh, could they be related to my blood pressure being too high? Because I don't have half of my autonomic nervous system. All I have is adrenaline. All I have is fight flight. We should at least open our minds to the idea that all of these things we've done for the last 40 years, heart disease is not going down. Neither is stroke. That's pitiful. Right. Absolutely. Let's focus our attention just a little bit back on the vitamin D story. One, one thing which I think is a real issue for, for people, you alluded to it before, there are different measurements, there are different recommendations. You say that it's an individual thing for every person. If somebody is going to their GP and their physician and they're getting a recommendation, what do they do with that? If, if looking at your advice, it's actually completely different. Yes. How do you navigate this, this, this sea of confusion? Very, very good question. Um, first, I would also, I would say something in support of the, the doctors first, because I'm going to then say um, something that's not in agreement with what they're doing. When I first went into the vitamin D literature, I found it extremely confusing. It is still extremely confusing. One of the problems is that the research scientists, so if you look at the literature published over since vitamin D was described, there are 65,000 articles about vitamin D and just you look in PubMed search engine. 35,000 of them were written in the last 10 years. That means that the amount of literature on vitamin D is going up, up, up. There are two kinds of literature, maybe three. One, bench research. I do this in a single cell. I watch what vitamin D does on the receptor, in the cytoplasm, on the outside of the cell. I do experimental designs in, in experimental animals. I try to control the variables. All of those studies have shown that vitamin D plays a role in almost every single system in our body. When they get to the end, I, as a bench researcher, say, gee, vitamin D plays a role in inflammation in white blood cells in the following way. That could mean that vitamin D could help humans with autoimmune disease. So as a conclusory comment in my last paragraph, I put it back in context for the practicing physician. Okay, so there are all these articles that say, gee, the vitamin D level in the whole population around the world is low. Gee, autoimmune disease is skyrocketing. Here is the vitamin D effect in a blood cell. 
shouldn't we be using vitamin D in our patients? Number one, we do the same sort of thing in a rat or a mouse model. One, we don't pay any attention to how the rat, rat or mouse sleeps. Two, do we think that most of the repair of the physical body happens during sleep? Yes. So we're taking nocturnal animals or animals that sleep in little tiny naps. We don't ever query how they sleep or how they feel. So we don't talk to them. So we don't think about whether or not that's playing a role in whether or not this cellular effect of repair has actually been given the potential to actually work. So one of the problems is we haven't gotten in the habit of taking the cellular repair processes that all the scientists are writing about and putting them into the context of a 24-hour clock. You may have a perfectly fine D level. If I keep you up all night, you'll still break down. That means you must think of every single effect that I report, especially about repair, as did this particular person have the opportunity to use the vitamin D in this phase of sleep? We weren't in the habit of doing that because we're so subspecialized. The next part is clinical medicine. So the next piece is, okay, uh, vitamin D is low in all my patients. I want to see the rheumatoid arthritis patients, whether they get better by giving them vitamin D. The clinical use of vitamin D is so complicated and there's so little literature about it that most of the clinicians who are setting up a clinical trial do it with a fixed dose. So I'm going to give these people who have this disease 5,000. I'm going to give these people who haven't developed the disease. I'm going to say what happens to those two groups. If you haven't really opened your mind to the idea that this chemical doesn't really do much of anything until you actually sleep, then you are unlikely to see the clinical effect that the, that the laboratory saw. So one, they're still sleep deprived. So one, it shouldn't be a fixed dose. Two, the time frame, even when I get it into the right blood level to see improvement in the disease is two or three years. They don't take the time to do that. Plus each person has their own little specialized fiefdom. These people are studying diabetes. These people are studying my foot pain. These people, and they don't put it in the context of Every single one of these problems has not been repairing in sleep. So the clinical literature that the physician who's sitting in his or her office, they might be interested in the PhD bench research. I was. I mean, I got so frustrated because I didn't have recommendations by my colleagues that I actually went to the bench research. But taking it from there to what am I going to do with my patient is one, difficult, two, risky. If you ever hurt anyone with what the methods that you use and they are experimental, you feel terrible. So it's only when you're in a situation where you have nothing better and where the patient comes in and says, I've already done A, B, C, and D. Is there anything else we might try that you're willing to step out there? The third type of literature is really the reviews, the meta-analyses, the reviews. And what they miss is putting the whole picture together. They say, we have 25 articles that are, one, we, 
Okay, so the lead-in paragraph is, one, we know epidemiologically that vitamin D deficiency is linked to these 15 diseases. So as vitamin D deficiency went up, these diseases went up. Two, that would suggest that if we can get the vitamin D level somewhere different, but we don't know where, that those diseases will be better. Now let's look at the diseases where we've taken those, let's take those articles where the disease has been treated with vitamin D and was there a positive outcome? Most of them know because they have no idea that it's not really dissolved in the fat and fat people, that you can't give a fixed dose, that, that all of these things that they, they're really doing the right thing as a clinical scientist. They're reading all the recommendations of their colleagues about how to set up the experiment. Unfortunately, in this particular case, it's wrong. They really can't use a fixed dose. They really have to be following 18 patients over three years. Who pays for that? Nobody. There is no one supporting the study of vitamin D, supporting the clinical. There are groups online who are asking for contributions because there is no big drug company behind it. And unfortunately, the reason why I went to the vitamin D workshop I happened to order a book that I thought was about vitamin D. No, it turns out it was a textbook that delineated the chemical structure of 932 different forms of vitamin D. They're all called vitamin D. Now, there are 932 chemical, chemically described different chemicals that are all called vitamin D. Why do they exist? Because the drug companies have modified this chemical called D3 that's been used on this planet by animals for billions, literally billions of years, if you count D2, they came first, and they think they're going to do it better. <laughs> what that means is they're going to give my relatives, my patients, and these populations, these modified chemicals. If they don't understand that affects sleep and mood, then they will never listen to their subject who just took this chemical, who tells them they feel depressed. They won't listen to the, because I didn't. That gave them day two and they couldn't sleep and they were depressed and they had terrible diarrhea. Went, eh. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not unrelated, okay? If they don't open their minds to the possibility. So there is now a body of evidence and a body of literature that suggests that vitamin D is directly active on the brain. Not even in the vitamin D receptor in the nucleus. Directly active in the cytoplasm. My clients, my patients can notice a difference in their mood directly you have to be on it for two or three years before you recognize that but that's why we fly to portugal for the summer you know everybody in uk goes to spain or portugal or not, not this year we we had a lovely summer oh this yeah year, you won't have to this year <laughs> but i agree it's the exception rather than rule a question springs to my mind actually which is when is there a specific time of day that you should take vitamin D? Because I've personally noticed that if I take it, because my reasoning was if I'm out in the sun all day, then my vitamin D levels should be maxed out in the evening. So take vitamin D before going to bed. Bad idea. You just don't get to sleep. So um, what is that all about? You have to be very close to 60 to 80 before you will notice a difference. Uh-huh. Um, and I have not been able to personally profess to have no, having noticed a difference, but I have patients who come in and say, I feel better when I take it in the morning. Patients who say they feel better when they take it at noon. Patients who say they don't sleep when they take it at night. So 
I have lots of individual experiences and I think it has a huge relationship to what's your level at the time. Because once you have a pretty stable level, you'll start to notice these fine tuning things that are, are is what we notice when we go to the tanning salon. We have a, a you know, that afternoon, feel much better. No question about it. Mood wise, very different. What that suggests and what is actually the fact in the background is vitamin D is in multiple forms in the body. So I didn't even get into this, but the stuff we're taking as the pill becomes then something else. Then that chemical goes up in the brain in that form and probably has a different effect in the cytoplasm than it does in the nucleus. And it's probably changed to get something else, 24-25-OH, that has yet another effect. So the other thing that happened was in the 1970s, they started to say that only active form is 125-OH. So everybody started doing research on that. No. If what I'm measuring in a 5,000 people is the 25-OH, and they can walk in the door and say, you know, my 25-OH level was 58, and I didn't feel good, and I had headaches. Now my 25-OH is 62, and I don't have headaches. That means the 25-OH form is active in some way. We have several very preliminary studies in animals where they're recording from brain cells directly that show that the 25-OH affects the firing rate, and it'll depend on the cell type. So there was all this literature about 25-OH. It's going to start coming out now. There are lots of studies on 125-OH. So when you're doing an animal model or you're doing a cell model, you're making an assumption that the organ itself has converted from 25-OH to 125-OH, and that's what you're dropping on the cell. But it turns out we just have one article that shows that there's a receptor in the cytoplasm that's related to cholesterol metabolism and keeping homeostasis of cholesterol because D is made from cholesterol. Duh, wouldn't you think it would feed in? So there's a 25-OH receptor in some way in the cytoplasm. That means this hormone has 50 levels of different chemicals and different effects. That level of complexity, we have just begun to open our minds to that possibility. Now, does that mean my doctor should not be recommending it to me? On the one hand, it does suggest that it's dangerous. It is dangerous. You cannot be messing around with this stuff without knowing what I know. Well, I know it can cause pain. Does that mean I know everything about it? No, it really doesn't. So you could, you could make an argument that my doctor shouldn't be doing this. Now, if I have medical problems that are related to this and I don't really want to wait for another 30 years until we figure it out, that was really the situation I'm in. I've seen what happens to my clients and to myself when they don't sleep. If I know anything that might make them sleep better, am I taking a risk? Absolutely. Are they going to be happy if they sleep better? You bet. So this is a brand new area. I just got a new article that I just was sent last week that's talking about yohimbine, which works in the adrenergic system, affecting the nuclei that run the tongue. So they're actually studying these little tiny firing cells. Remember those cells I was looking at? They're taking those little cells. This is an area that I just was introduced to. There are scientists that are taking those cells, watching the firing rate, and watching how you can change the firing rate 
by putting different chemicals on it. And yohimbine is one of them. So there are scientists that are studying that. So that means there's opening a window to the idea of looking at sleep and sleep apnea transition into sleep phases and paralysis in a chemical way instead of in the oral pharynx. So the scientists are starting with that. Once they start to super, and I, I don't see any references in this article to D, but once they start to organize a little bit and watch, oh, D has an effect as a neurotransmitter as well because it makes the enzyme that makes acetylcholine. Maybe we should do that too. This is a whole new area of medicine. Unfortunately, as I walk into the doctor's office and I'm 63, I don't want to wait for this literature to mature for 20 years. So that means I either take a risk as an individual and I learn it online. And at the same time, what I recommend to everyone is when you feel better, you come back and you tell your doctor why you feel better. This is why I'm in this field. My patients came back and said, I feel so much better. And I was like, no way that stupid CPAP mask is going to help your headache. No way. It did. Brilliant. So let's round up this whole story and um, just give people just a little bit of a roadmap that they can follow. So you very clearly stated, um, utterly correctly and ethically, in my opinion, that you should not be messing with this if you don't need it. However, you also said that a lot of people do have sleep disorders and are unaware of them. So that leaves us potentially with a list of symptoms that that might be helped by going down this road. So for the person sitting, listening to this at home, at what point or what set of symptoms um, other than a known sleep disorder should they start thinking in this direction? Very good question. I would have to say almost anything that's not cancer-related you need to educate yourself as to whether or not, especially the common things, hypertension, high cholesterol, back pain, heart disease, stroke, those things are all in a background. The background is a sleep disorder. There's always a sleep disorder, recognized or unrecognized. Right at the moment, the clinic, the typical physician sitting in the room recognizes that Anybody with those diseases could have a sleep disorder and they might be willing to send them to a sleep study. But unfortunately, if they don't have sleep apnea, they have no road to follow. So one, anybody who's on any of those medications can actually educate themselves. I really don't recommend that you, if you have had any serious medical problem, that you go around your doctor still go for the sleep study. But if the sleep study shows that you don't have apnea to the extent that you have to wear a CPAP mask, there still is an avenue for you to intervene. You go to my website, you watch all the videos, you read as much as you can, you educate yourself as to, oh, there's another place where I might be able to intervene that's a deficiency state. It's a little complicated. I need to do several vitamins together as a group over a three-month span and then I need to watch how I feel and I need to learn how my body talks to me over the next year. I have the potential to work with you individually um, for the, I, now I require that it be for a whole year. You have the opportunity, if you don't want to go into it that intensively, to order a workbook that tells you what to do every single week for an entire year. And ultimately, 
each person has multiple things that they're used to having. I would make the argument that any kind of chronic pain, any kind of chronic allergy, asthma, rash, the things that we think of as, oh, I've always had that, food sensitivities, the things that we've thought of as routine now, those, are, those were not there in the past. That means almost any symptom complex, once you've seen your doctor, once you've had the routine test to clear up any possibility that that pain in your back is a brain tumor or a, a lung tumor that went to your back, something like that, if you've cleared off all that off of your plate and you want to then pursue something on your own, these alternative methods are something that you can pursue. Having said that, I think it's really important to keep your doctor as part of your care. I really think there's nothing wrong with informing your doctor of what you're doing, asking for their permission. If they won't do your vitamin D for you, that doesn't mean you can't do it. And you can do both in parallel. And most physicians, as long as you don't ask them to buy in to what you're doing, they will buy in once you come back and you look like a million bucks and you're sleeping better than they are. <laughs> Great way. That's, that's brilliant. Absolutely. I have three little questions that I always ask all of my guests. Um, unless there's, before we go into that, there's anything else that's, that's burning for you that you want to, to tell No, I'm happy. I think we've done a very good job of covering I, everything. I could just geek out here for hours longer, but <laughs> I, I understand that maybe my listeners might, might not feel the same. So, Stasia, I always ask all of my guests these three little questions because I'm very heavily into the idea of mind, body, spirit, and those are embodied for me by the idea of health, happiness, and serenity. So how do you actually define health? What does that word mean for you? Uh, excellent question. And I think that serenity part is really important. What I've noticed is um, as I become more focused on health, and probably to me health means waking up with a smile on your face every day and being happy and content with your interactions and your life. It, health has a lot to do with that for me at this stage. Um, I think health and serenity are closer to one another than, I, than they would have been when I was younger. And I think one of our realizations, one of the marks of getting older is to realize that emotional health um, is tightly tied to serenity. That's a, it's a perfect word. I, I think I would have pictured health as, uh, you know, when I was in my 30s and 40s, as having no medical problems and being able to run every day and being able to do most of the things I want to do. I really would have to say that in the last 10 years, um, I want to be physically healthy, but mental health really is that serenity is part of it. And, and serenity is linked to spirituality. And I think most of us, as we get healthy, realize that physical health does not necessarily equate to serenity and and happiness, and that happiness is probably much more linked to spirituality and that feeling of serenity, and that serenity and spirituality are linked to one another. It doesn't matter which type of spirituality you want to follow. Serenity is looking at it, 
how we as an individual fit into a much bigger universe. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I've appreciated. I was so looking forward. You have not disappointed. Quite the contrary. I could talk to you for another three hours quite easily. Um, thank you so, so much for your work. Um, it's a magnificent body of work. And if we can do anything on this side of the pond to get it a bit more well known, I'll, I'll do the best that I can there. And um, hopefully a lot of people will be coming to your website. Uh, please, listeners, do do that. I've seen the website. It's enormously full of absolutely all sorts of massive information to do with this subject. Um, Dr. Gobnak's really gone out of her way to, to supply you with everything there. So go read up, inform yourself, take control of your health hair and get a good night's sleep, right? <laughs> yes. And I, I'd like to say my website location again, www.drgominak.com. And we'll also put the link in the podcast notes for those who want to work there. Absolutely. So thank, thank you, you again once more. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tatiana. Thanks for inviting me. Well, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed those two episodes as much as I did with Dr. Sasha Gomenak. I think this is an extraordinary body of work. I also think it's vitally important and it makes such sense. Your body is designed to heal itself. It can do that, but only when it's given a chance to rest and repair, and it does that best when it's asleep. So take this information away, take it seriously, get your vitamin D levels checked, and think about your children too. And until next time, encouraging you as always to rate and review us on iTunes, check into our Facebook page, the episodes are always there. And of course, if you want extended podcast notes, with all of the information written down so that you don't have to worry about playing it back or forgetting it, then just come along and become a member of London Heal at londonheal.com. Become a London Heal insider. Until next time, wishing you as always health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>